On this edition of Hoopsology, we have a packed show featuring two guests. First, we welcome Dwayne Rankin, journalist for AZ Central covering the Phoenix Suns. Then we welcome Harrison Fagan, who's a Lakers beat writer and editor-in-chief for Lakers SB Nation. Welcome to another episode of Hoopsology. I am Justin Goodrum, joined by Matt Thomas. What's up, man? What's up, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, man. Good. Can't complain. It's a beautiful Sunday. We have unusually warm weather um, in New Mexico, so yeah. I can't complain about too much. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice weekend. Nice weekend. Uh, record high temperatures for October in New Mexico, but uh, but it is nice for the time being. For sure. And even though the NBA season has concluded, as we alluded to last week, um, still a lot to talk about. And we have a loaded show um, for you today to check out. Um, We're going to break down just the league's change of stance on these social justice messages. Um, We'll discuss Daryl Morey resigning from the Houston Rockets. And possibly interviewing Jed Van Gundy, as well as Ty Lue, um becoming the next head coach of the L.A. Clippers. And, of course, we got to talk about Stephen A. Smith and what kind of uh, foolishness that he has to say. So we'll break <laughs> that down. But also we have two guests. Um, our first guest is Dwayne Rankin of the AZ Central publication. Um, he's a journalist that covers the Phoenix Suns. A fun chat with him. Discussed just how the Suns um, did in the bubble. They were undefeated. We also talked about him covering a story. And I don't know if you ever heard of this map. It's pretty cool. It's called um, NBA GM School. Um, it's a mm. web-only series. I think it's – I don't know if it's aired on NBA TV, but it's on their um, YouTube page. Basically, it's, I think, four – contestants um, compete basically to get a chance to talk to real life NBA GMs. And one of the contestants, um, she was, she's an Arizona resident. So um, Dwayne got a chance to talk with her and did a profile on her. We discussed that as well. So a fun chat with Dwayne. And we also chatted with Harrison Fagan. Um, He is a Lakers beat writer and editor in chief of Lakers um, SB nation, a really informative chat Awesome just chatting about the Lakers, everything you want to know, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Rondo, just how the organization was affected by Kobe, gave really great insight from somebody who lives in that city. So you want to listen to that just to get how the title in the championship for the Lakers really means to not only the players, but for the fans of Los Angeles. So you want to stay tuned and listen to that. So before we hop into our topics, man, of course, Get in touch with the show through Facebook and Twitter, through typing in Hoosology. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's really helpful for us. And email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Any questions, concerns, positive, negative feedback, uh, we'll read it on air and we'll discuss it. So, man, let's hop into it and discuss Adam Silver stating that social justice messages will be, quote, left large excuse me largely be left off the court next season um we've talked about this issue with uh, yourself and i as well as our guest but in this uh frame of reference heading into next season i want to kind of ask you the, the consequences of this do you think the league will get backlash from its players from I guess, opposition from social justice messages being added onto the court. Now those people saying people are going to say, oh, well, you're hypocritical. You, you know, you're not really, you know, quote unquote down for the cause. 
Um, it was only for a certain period of time. What do you make of the kind of the consequences of Adam Silver making this decision? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I do think there will be blowback just because there is a lot of obviously passion and enthusiasm behind this movement. Uh, and, you know, players have, have made it clear uh, how much of a need they, they feel uh, this movement has in society and everything. So I, I can't imagine there not being some backlash. However, maybe it will be, um, maybe the, the flames will be squashed a little bit in that we're going to have a couple months before we tip off again. And, you know, we're going to get through, uh, I hate to bring it up, but we're going to get through a contentious election season and, and all that. So maybe after that point, and we've had a couple months, um, you know, some of the feelings will will simmer down, but time will tell. And, you know, this this is something that was very, very praised and um, promoted by by Twitter, who we we know Twitter is kind of the place to go for strong opinions. Um, And, you know, that that certainly will have a backlash and I can't imagine it goes unnoticed you know if if jerseys are looking the same if the messaging is taken off the court i I think people are going to notice and they're going to speak out about it uh however i I do think it is the correct move from from a business standpoint and that's certainly not saying that any of the players efforts to promote their um their social justice um you know their um you know policies that they want and um and things like that. I, I'm not saying by any means that they shouldn't have the right to do that, nor is the NBA. Um, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you do you think like I do that there will be a huge backlash or do you think there's going to be more understanding than I'm anticipating? Um, it kind of depends on the state of the country, to be honest. So, you know, timing's everything. So when the next season begins, whether that's going to be in January, February, March, and there's, you know, another shooting that gets a lot of publicity, I think the league's going to take a lot of heat for this. However, I think it's imperative that the league has a plan moving forward in terms of, okay, we're going to take Black Lives Matter off the court, the jerseys go back to normal, but we have a a plan of social justice reform and not only because the election's easy, right? That's a national polarizing topic. Every that even if the president um, is not really up for debate in terms of a close election, it still gets national coverage. It's, it's, it's an, it's an election year. Um, but I think with the NBA keeping the foot on the pulse of how they pursue um, something like NBA cares. Like when I was growing up, I saw NBA cares every single game. Um, It was usually after halftime and you would see the players volunteering, doing something. So I think something to that effect, that is a NBA does something to, you know, help the community, whether it's um, bringing awareness to social justice or, describe you know discussing racial inequality i think that would be a nice touch to see it for every single broadcast and again it's you know nba cares that's a 15 second segment you know i think seeing something similar to that on all of the national broadcasts will be nice along with just keeping you know this on the frames and minds of a lot of people 
So I think moving forward, as long as the league, the players, um, and Adam Silver specifically have a plan, I think them moving away from this won't be a huge deal. However, if there's no plan, if they just you know proceed with this course of action, I do see them taking some heat for it, and it kind of depends on the level um, if there's another um, shooting of an um, unarmed uh, minority. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think time will tell, you know, we'll see, see what the plans are. Um, you know, he, he seemed to make it clear. I mean, in this, this quote that you mentioned earlier, it's, it's from an interview Adam Silver did uh, with Rachel Nichols. And he also said that he, he has an understanding and he's sympathetic to fans that want to tune in and watch the game with I have I'm paraphrasing so forgive me this isn't exact but but basically saying he sympathizes with fans that want to tune in and and be able to focus on a game um I don't know what are what are your thoughts on on that I mean it kind of goes for each viewer and what made me realize that this is not so much a partisan issue in terms of the viewing experience is, you know, Larry Wilmore. And I don't necessarily think he's an exception to that rule. I think there's a lot of, you know, people on both sides of, you know, the debate in terms of kind of the uh, opinions of Black Lives Matter in terms of when you watch a game, you know, do you really, do you want to see that? I mean, people use sports as an escape. It's true. Um, so I think fans will mostly be receptive to this overall just kind of seeing a back to normalcy and i think it plays into the pandemic too i think the two go hand in hand so just kind of seeing you know somewhat fans in the stands again with just the courts just kind of being what you would normally see pre-pandemic um would be a nice um kind of site for fans i think in a way fans might associate black lives matter with the pandemic i know it's a weird association but just like kind of a negative consultation kind of like you have a kind of weird taste in your mouth of what you know fans experience i mean after all uh as we've we'll talk about with harrison and what we've talked about man all the time the ratings have been down across all sports and mm-hmm. i think it has a lot to do with the with the pandemic um so I think in a weird way, I know this is going to sound kind of weird, but having that, you know, messaging still on the court, you know, it kind of brings back kind of weird memories for fans. Let's just say there's a magical vaccine and everything's back to normal, you know, in March and the season starts. It's kind of like, you know, bringing up those memories that, you know, it might hit close to home. But so I think that's why I think the league itself needs, I think, a clear um, course of action. And I think the players, too, I, I... the biggest thing is not so much the league because the league has a business to run. So whatever Adam Silver does, I it kind of doesn't truly matter to me. It matters to more what the players are going to do because you can't censor what the players have to say after a game. So as long as you know LeBron is pushing um, what he's doing, Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, the, the rest of the players in the league, they're the ones that are kind of keeping the conversation always prevalent. Um, not having the messaging on the court is not going to be a big deal. It's really the ball's in the player's court. It's it's really up to them. I mean, if they want to exact leverage and say, "Hey, we're not down for you taking the, the messaging off the court," then you know we're going to see probably the messaging on the court. If it disappears, I think it tells you that the players are cool with this too. 
So I think they're really it's going to be up to the players to establish um, their full stance on this. Yeah, and I can't imagine that that the league is going to do anything to interfere, like you said, with like post game interviews and things like that. I mean, the in my opinion, you know, the players don't need um, necessarily need the the platform in game during the game to get these messages across to to a large audience. Um, now, you know, whether whether or not they should have that, of course, is something that'll be debated. But it seems like, as Adam Silver has said, you know, they're going to be pulling away from that. Um, there's, you know, I I bring this up because um, there was an interesting poll that came out that I, I don't know if you saw or not. And for the listeners, if if you want to look it up, it's on pewresearch.org, P-E-W-research.org, um, that showed that support for the Black Lives Matter movement dipped since June. So really after the Jacob Blake shooting uh, and that that whole incident, and of course we had the NBA boycott, Justin and I did a, an episode where we pretty much solely focused on that. Um, so the, it showed, this poll showed that you know, while there is still um, strong support among Black Americans, as as the article says, support overall for Black Lives Matter decreased from 67% to 55% for people that were polled. So you can go read the full article. I, I don't want to, you know, dive into this too much deep in the woods, but I do wonder, like, how much some of these numbers are factoring into Adam Silver's decision making. Uh, again, speaking more from a business standpoint. Um, from the league, like just generally speaking, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't run a business and put a message up that is, that is polarizing for people to see as they're entering your business. Like say, say you own a bakery, you wouldn't put up a message like, you know, I'm going to say something silly, but like dog lovers only allowed in here or, you know, something like that. You, you wouldn't do anything to try and alienate viewership or participation in your business. So I do wonder how much of a factor that is having, um, you know, you and I talked about last week, you brought up great statistics about the ratings and that they've dipped across the board in sports. And I do agree that I think the, the pandemic is an outlier year, but you know, you're, you're right on point. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what plan the NBA has and uh, and how the players react over this. It doesn't seem like immediately following Adam Silver's interview with Rachel Nichols, it doesn't seem like there was a huge backlash. But I do think that is coming, if not from the players directly, I, I think it's coming from the media. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'll be wrong in, in that prediction. Well, I'll say this and then we can move on. I think with Black sure. Lives Matter, the I think the overall um, frustration for, I think, like myself and um, like my father is that mm. when we see that on the court, we're not, to me, I don't know who the leader of Black Lives Matter is. And honestly, nor do I necessarily care. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a statement of, uh, I mean, we've gone over this, of yeah, just saying this like, hey, this group of people that have been disenfranchised matters. Um, and I think the problem is that from a media perspective, it gets turned into an organization. And not once have I seen Adam Silver talk to the leader of Black Lives Matter. Like they have, they weren't in the bubble. Uh, to my knowledge, they, I haven't seen like an interview on a prominent NBA broadcast. 
So to me, that's where they, and I think there's plenty of, there's just lots of confusion on it as well. And I think from a narrative perspective, um, that's where it gets, which, that's where it gets frustrating, especially when you have a league that's predominantly African-American. We, you know, as you're as being black, you feel disenfranchised and that gets lined up with the actual organization that has whatever kind of narrative it has, it gets pulled into a political group. And that's where, that's where it gets political. And that's why I've been saying, I, I do agree with whether it's rightly or wrongly, this has to turn into a political issue. Should it be? No, but is it? Yes. So that's just, it's just the cold reality of it. So I think for an Adam Silver standpoint, he's in a position like the China situation in which um, I don't know if you heard with Mark Cuban, um, he did an interview with Megyn Kelly, mm-hmm. you know, and he openly said he was making Megyn Kelly pressed him on it. You know, he said that they're doing business with China, <laughs> like, you know, and that they're going to. Um, and that despite all of China's human rights violations that, you know, it's in a it's a business move to do business with them. And I think with the NBA, same thing. They're a business. They're going to do what's right for them. And I think not relying on in it, the NBA, it's it's really up to the players to decide what narrative they want to drive. Not necessarily the, the league itself, because Adam Silver works for the owners. So I think what I'm saying is from a player standpoint, you know, the, the balls, like I said, the balls in their court. What, what do they want to do? Do you want to take it all the way or, I mean, do you, are you cool with just what's happening? We can just move on. Um, I think the blame and the, the, I think the heat, I think should kind of fall on the players for not taking enough action. If in fact, this mm. is the last time we hear them talk about it rather than a league perspective, because the league's a business. It's not necessarily absolving them from blame but they've been caught in hypocrisy time after time as we'll discuss with this somewhat with daryl this daryl morey situation so i think from my player's perspective as um our guests will state later on um we saw the players for the first time really take have a voice and use their leverage to enact social change and i think if they just stop doing it um it's going to reflect badly on them yeah i think they, I, I would imagine, obviously I can't know, but I would imagine that following this season two, it, it may feel like still a, a big weight on their shoulders in that they've, uh, I mean, I think, I think some of the players have probably felt almost obligated to speak on, on these topics where, I mean, let's be honest, they, they may not necessarily be experts on the given the given topic at hand, but they have maybe their their personal experience growing up in their communities or you know what whatever that may have been that they can certainly speak to um, and I think in a, in a lot of ways it's it's an unfair pressure to expect for these players to be experts on it so so I guess I'm saying like i I don't feel like there should be any sort of obligation for them to speak on that, but if if they have experience and if, if they, you know, are, are backing up the points they're making well and pushing for, um, for the, the change that they want to see, then of course, as, as you and I have always said on this show, like they have first amendment rights and being, doing what they do, having the platforms they have, they have a, a much larger platform than most people do to affect change. So uh, I can't imagine that discontinues for the players that, 
um, that want to continue um, continue this push, um, you know, wherever wherever this takes us over the next uh, months, years, you know, wh- whatever the case may be. So I don't know. I, I guess you know there there's a lot of roads we could go down with this topic. Sure, um, absolutely. And we'll we'll have plenty more to discuss. This this isn't going away, but. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm with you. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. And, uh, and I agree with your points about, um, a lot of confused messaging, um, that, you know, for me as, as someone following along is, um, you know, co- confusing as well when I'm trying to decipher, like what, what's the difference between like the website? Is that the organization? Is that, you know, is, is that this, this, is it this messaging, you know, um, things like that. I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. Yeah, it's, it, it is, it is a confusing um, time, I guess, especially with certain kind of narratives that get put out there. That's for sure. Um, I want to move on and talk about Daryl Morey. Yeah. Um, I don't think we need to spend a super amount of time on this, but um, this past Thursday, he stepped down. I'm officially, I think he's going to step down November 1st. Um, He has a quote here. um, This is from the New York Times, basically stating that the Rockets was the most gratifying experience of his personal life and that he was confident that Houston would continue to perform at the highest level. Um, He took out an ad basically um, thanking the Houston Rockets. Um, for their time, and particularly um, highlighting his time um, with um, James Harden. So it was like a full-page ad in one of the local um, Houston um, newspapers. Um, I don't know. I think this is not surprising. I'm very interested to kind of, you know, friend of the show, um, Alan Munzler, probably has plenty of thoughts on this since he's a huge Mm. Houston Rockets fan. you know, the Rockets were on a lot of pressure this season, and it, it looked like the pandemic wasn't necessarily enough to be an excuse um, to perhaps keep Daryl Morey there um, for another year. Now, he did step down. Um, it seemed like this wasn't like a straight-up firing. Do you believe that? Do you think he truly stepped down off his own volition, or do you think the Rockets went to him and said, hey— like, we're kind of going to let you go, but you're going to step down and kind of like not have kind of egg on your face publicly. The way that um, the the quotes that we got from the owner of the Rockets, I mean, it really did sound like this was Daryl's choice. And I I wouldn't be shocked either way. I mean, to me, it seems like the book was was closing on this chapter of the Houston Rockets. And I I, I guess I would lean towards it was it was his time to be let go. I mean, he had 13 seasons there, um, plenty of success, certainly. But I, I think a lot of people would agree that fell short of of expectations for this team. I mean, they, the closest they got was really bringing the Warriors to the to the brink, which is what, uh, at least from 2013 on, what this team was being built to do is take on the Warriors uh, I'm sorry, not 2013, probably like 2015 on, uh, they were being built to take out the Warriors. Um, you know, and and they got really close. And I, I think Daryl is an incredibly smart GM. Any team would be lucky to have him. I mean, so I'm stating my bias here. I'm I'm a big fan uh, because he makes stuff happen, and he's very very experimental. Now, obviously, it it didn't result in a championship 
for the Houston Rockets, but I think he's going to be a hot commodity if he wants to come back and be a GM. He's alluded to maybe looking at other career pursuits, maybe working as uh, a GM or analytics staffer for maybe other sports leagues uh, because, you know, he's, he's very much in line with kind of the, the money ball era of sports, so to speak. Very, very um, one of the, the four thinkers of the analytical sports analysis and, and really the person maybe who brought that to the NBA. Um, you know, you think of the epic quotes that Barkley has kind of dissing on Daryl Morey as, as being a stats guy, but he really changed the shape of the league. I think he deserves some credit for that. Um, and, and again, it didn't result in, in much success. Uh, but I, I think it was probably his time. Um, and I guess I would lean towards the Rockets. We're going to let him go. What's your feeling on that? Yeah, I agree. His time was limited. Um, not the, the, the China situation and then just decisions about like the small ball era, um, stuff like that. And then it failing. So I'm not surprised he's gone. I want to ask you, do you think this is a more of a indication that the organization could be shifting from James Harden, from Westbrook, just from this entire you know era of Houston Rockets basketball, but that it could be over that, you know, whenever the opportunity comes up, James Harden could be you know on the chopping block. As someone who's, who's a Rockets fan, I mean, they, they're my Western conference team anyway. Sure. Uh, I'm hoping it is, but I, I'm not sure because there's, there's a lot of value in a franchise in keeping James Harden with any, any cast of characters around him, even if there's not going to be championship success, you have kind of this, this guy who's a spectacle, like, Hey, come watch this guy score 40 points and get 10 assists, you know? And that is something that, you know, that, that at least doesn't make you the Charlotte Hornets, sorry, Charlotte Hornets, Um, you know? So, so I think there, there's some value that they're going to have to get back for him if they're going to let him go, like, like really um, several draft picks, something to sort of um, guarantee as best you can that they're building for the future and for a more successful team. That Westbrook contract is going to be really, really hard to get out of because he's a guy that has really had his value shot over the last two to three seasons um, even in spite of winning the MVP after that triple double season. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to imagine this team doing a rebuild, but I do think it is what they need to do and what I would like to see them do. But I, do you get the sense that they would trade away James Harden? Uh, I don't know. It kind of depends what's out there for him. I don't I think, think he would have to push for it. I think so too, and I don't know if there's enough value for it, you know. Yeah. Um, just thinking offhand, but at the same time, you know, teams kind of, you know, you want to refresh, start, you rebuild, and move on. Like, I think it's proven. It's not like James Harden has gotten to like the Western Conference Finals or in the NBA Finals and hasn't won. I mean, we haven't really seen him have huge success. And seeing a team like the Denver Nuggets, you know you know, get to the Western Conference Finals and have success in a relatively, you know, short time under this leadership compared to the Houston Rockets. I think there's plenty of questions to be asked there. I think it's fair. 
My dream hire would be the Rockets get Sam Hinkie. Let's start the process. Come on. I want want to at least be interesting in, you know, three years or so. Let's get, let's get my Joel Embiid. Let's get my Ben Simmons. We'll at least have stuff to talk about rather than failing in the playoffs every single year. And and on to that point um, with the Rockets now um, interviewing Jeff Van Gundy, yeah. Where do you see their coaching search going? Um, I mean, we've mentioned kind of these names, you know, floating around. It seems like they're being, you know, snatched up. Um, yet to hear about Becky Hammond's name. Um, where do you see Van Gundy, uh, Jeff Van Gundy in particular, uh, landing? I mean, he's done broadcast television for so many years, uh, both him and, you know, Mark Jackson as well, and his brother Stan Van Gundy. I mean, all three of them do, you know, during, you know, broadcast television covering games uh, for the league do you f out of the three of them who do you think is likely to be signed uh most likely i would think would be mark jackson still wow because he's kind of been well okay well if we include stan van gundy he's been in the game more recently than mark jackson sure but i think stan van gundy may have worn out his welcome a little bit more so than the other two um jeff van gundy would be interesting i mean he he didn't have playoff success with that yao ming t-mac houston rockets team that i loved um but i have you know just objectively speaking even if you're watching games even if you're talking to people and i know you can point to steve kerr right away as an example of how i'm wrong here but i think it's more the rule um, than the exception that if you've been out of coaching for more than two seasons, it's really tough to come back and catch up from a scheme perspective. It's part of what made Frank Vogel's success as the Lakers coach pretty remarkable this season. And he was only away for about a year. He was helping out with Brad Stevens. So he still had a, a pretty big eye on the game. Uh, in comparison to being in the broadcasting booth, which is a lot of work, and you're not getting as deep as you were with the X's and O's. So I would be pretty shocked if the Rockets hired Jeff Van Gundy, especially that was his last coaching stop. Uh, But I would be thrilled because I like Jeff Van Gundy, uh, but I wouldn't expect too much success with how how long he's been away from the game. But I I think there's still a place somewhere for Mark Jackson, and he's the most likable, in my opinion, of those three. So I could see him coming back more. I don't know. What are your thoughts on who who's the most likely candidate of those three? And what are your what are your thoughts on coaching chops? Like how how long can you be away from the game and then come back and have success? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, to your your first question, I I think it's more likely Stan Van Gundy, just in terms of mm. um his frequency in the game, like you said. I don't know what's really going on with Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy for that matter, because their names have been floated over the years. And Seems they like haven't the landed anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what their deal is. So I'm not really sure on that regard. Um, to answer your second question, uh, I think it depends on the coach and how they relate to the players. Because it, it's a players league. And mm-hmm. granted, I think coaching, again, this is coming from a fan, so what what the hell do I know? But um, I think coaching mostly comes into play, in my opinion, you know, during certain situational, um, I guess, 
I guess certain tactics that require situational awareness, if that makes any sense. So mm-hmm. you're especially in the NBA, you're not coaching every single play. The game happens organically. You have different floor generals that have such a high IQ. The game is moving at such a high rate that I think the coach is mostly there to really set up schemes and let the players, you know, um, go out where they may. I mean, it's kind of, I only, I think I compare it to, um, have you ever played Starcraft or Warcraft? Oh yeah, of course. You kind of have your, you know, you have your um, armies build, you know, like the base and then you have them, you know, build the army and, but the you all you tell them what to do and then they do it. You're not actually like, you know, taking part of the process every single way. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're happy they're happy they're um, trying to get my words together. But they're, I guess, operating independently of the coach. The coach is only laying out a framework. So. I think with the coaches, it's about personalities. It's about kind of staying the hell out of the way and not kind of screwing it up. Um, yeah. And not trying to overbear because unless you're a coach um, that is really respected, players aren't going to like you and are not going to take you seriously. Look at the whole Jim Boylan situation in Chicago. He tried coming in there with an iron fist. He was basically told to go fly a kite somewhere else by the players. And that includes um, somebody um, like Tom Thibodeau, too. I mean, as much success as he had, the players, you know, ultimately had huge issues with him as well. And I think ruling with an iron fist with the NBA, that's a player's league, is not going to fly. So I think it's more about personalities rather than, you know, being away from the game for, you know, a certain amount of time. That's a great point. And it's almost like, College and professional coaching are are the exact opposite things. Like it's yeah. And just to tease our interview, I, I think Harrison Fagan had great points about why Coach Vogel was successful this year, and I, I think he really expanded on a on a broad level on what it takes to be a successful coach in the NBA these days. So stay tuned for that. I'll, I'll just kind of put that in as a tease because it's going along with some of the things that you're saying uh, in, in your response there. Should we move on to Ty Lue? Yeah, for sure. Um, we can just touch on this. Um, Tyron Lue um, lands the coaching gig um, with the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, according to Woj, um, it is a five-year contract. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? He was under the tutelage of Doc Rivers, lands the head coaching gig. Uh, we talked about kind of the Clippers' uh, failures, as you'll hear later with um, Harrison. Uh, but what do you make of this coaching hire? I don't like it. And Ooh, okay. <laughs> and let me be clear, I, I like Ty Lue. I, th- I think he's a great coach. But I, I just don't understand, like, why then is Doc gone when you're going to just promote his top assistant? We had chemistry issues all season long. Ty Lue was a part of that in, in some respects. So it doesn't make sense to me to, like, ship Doc out and basically, you know, have him be the scapegoat and then promote Ty Lue, who was who is an integral part of that coaching staff. Seems like you're just going to have the same problems that you had this last season. Or you can tell by my tone, I'm, I'm not very high on this Clippers team. Um, maybe I just feel betrayed since, uh, since they allowed the nuggets to beat them and made me look and many people look like a fool, but, but no, but seriously, I, 
I don't understand. Like you let Doc go and then basically just keep his coaching staff in. That that doesn't make sense to me. And and again, no slight on Ty Lue because I think he he's a great coach. He won a title in Cleveland, obviously. Um, but I I just would have thought maybe Ty Lue goes to the Rockets or something. Um, I I do yeah. think he's a deserving head coach, but it just seems weird to me. Um, I I don't know. What are your thoughts on this takeover? Tell me where I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. I don't – your mindset's correct. I don't really understand – you would think you want a new framework in terms of how Kawhi and Paul George operates with that team compared to somebody like Ty Lue at the same time. Maybe he has a different way of doing things as the head coach. So – We'll have to wait and see. I I understand your logic, and I agree with probably 85% of it. I just think that other percentage is probably like, okay, let's see what Ty Lue can do in a situation. And also, I think this is going to be an excellent indication of his coaching ability. You know, know, Ty Lue has been linked to LeBron for a lot of his career. And I think it was very indicative of um, of a podcast of Alan Iverson. I don't know if you caught it in all, in all of all the smoke, or I think it's yeah, all the smoke uh, with Stephen Jackson and uh, and uh, Matt Barnes, and you know they went into detail as with you know asked Alan Iverson about stepping over Ty Lue in the 2001 NBA Finals. Hmm. And how, you know, he regretted it just because, you know, Ty Lue, he's just a relentless competitor. And as Alan Iverson just did it, just he wasn't trying to diss him. It just kind of came as the, the flow of the game. So sure. I I think I guess my point is, is that, you know, Ty Lue is a very respected figure in the league. Yeah. Um, despite him not having like a super prominent career. Um, so I'm curious to see if he'll have more of a, I don't know, a more of a stricter aspect to how he controls his players, but we'll see. But I get what you're saying though. Like, I mean, you're basically taken from the same coaching tree that wasn't able to uh, provide you with any championships, even though he's been, he's a recent hire. Yeah. I would say that it's, it's, it's a negative hire, but I guess I'm willing to give it more of a chance than you are, but I understand your hesitation. And I do put Ty Lue, like, even though he's had, less of a track record to this point, I guess I, I would think he X's and O's wise. Like we talked about doc a lot and how he's had, I mean, six failures in the playoffs where his team has led three to two or three to one in a series. So we talked about maybe doc is into making those halftime adjustments, things like that. I do think Ty Lue will be better at that. And, and so my other thought that, that we don't know just yet. And this will be my last point on, on this topic, but um, you know, maybe this is something that Paul George and Kawhi both signed off on. You'd, you'd have to think maybe with Steve Ballmer, like, Hey, put Ty Lue in that position. You know, he, um, you know, maybe he saw things very differently than doc did. Um, So uh, that's, that's what, you know, and that's speculative because I haven't read anything that has said that, but that's just what I would assume in that, you're keeping a guy from the same coaching staff. Like usually when a head coach is gone, his assistant staff is, is gone as well, or at least a very good portion of it. Um, so, so it's interesting. I mean, we'll, we'll see what the Clippers do next year. Um, like I said, I, I'm not too high on this team unless we really see some kind of leadership from Kawhi, some kind of change there, but we'll see what happens. Maybe Ty Lue is the guy to bring that out of him. Right. For sure. Yeah, we'll just have to kind of see how it plays out. Um, last topic, and you have some uh, quotes from this. 
uh, Stephen A. Smith once again um, wrangling up the internet with his comments um, regarding LeBron James's legacy. Can you kind of go into detail as to oh how LeBron, you know, <laughs> winning the title, um, not giving him his full credit um, because of the era he plays in? So basically, this this was on first take, as as a lot of these inflammatory headlines are. Um, and it was Kendrick Perkins, Stephen A. Smith, and Max Kellerman. The clip that I watched, I, I did not watch the full segment, full disclosure, but uh, the clip that I watched, it was about a 10-minute clip, was Stephen A. Smith basically saying things like, LeBron James can never be the greatest of all time because he is playing in the softest era of basketball. So that automatically disqualifies him as being the greatest of all time. And he said firmly, I will never, never, never put LeBron over Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time. Like just Jordan's peak and the era that they played in, et cetera. Um, you know, kind of, I kind of uh, felt like one of those talks. So Max Kellerman then like piled on and agreed with a lot of what Stephen A. Smith said. And they were just kind of piling on Kendrick Perkins, who I didn't realize is 35. So he's, he's my age. I would have guessed he was, he's older than us. Me um, too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. 35. Um, and, you know, Max Kellerman had this whole bit like, Oh, Kendrick, I know you were young back then, but let me tell you what the Jordan arrow was like. Uh, and, and basically piling on from this, this perspective, which I think is such an unnuanced take, in my opinion, that it detracts from Jordan. And and I'm of the opinion still that Jordan is the GOAT. Um, but it, and it kind of, in my opinion, like these kind of like tough guy takes hurts Jordan's legacy um, and, and kind of makes the argument look a little more silly than it needs to because there are plenty of stances you can take. I don't know. I'm curious to think like, do you feel like this league? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I would agree with like a toughness element. Like, yeah, you don't have guys throwing clotheslines at you when you come down the lane, <laughs> right. like you did in the eighties and maybe early nineties or like bad boys pistons. But do you think it's fair to call this league incredibly soft? And, and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know, I think you would agree with me that at least at, at this point in time, you know, Jordan is still the goat, um, so to speak. But do, do you think it's really detrimental to LeBron that he's playing in, in the, you know, two thousands and beyond? So I'll just keep it at this. I think it's unfair to punish the players for something that the league has, fully enacted in terms of less physical play. And I think that has a lot yeah. to do with the mouths and the palace, right? So ever since then, any you blow on a guy, it's a foul. If there's any kind of a fight, it's a suspension. Like, that's not the player's fault. That's not LeBron's fault. And so to use that as a barometer to penalize LeBron, I think it's wrong. Now, you can use things in terms of, you know, when LeBron was in Cleveland and when they played the Boston Celtics and when they lost to them, that's fair. When the Miami Heat lost to the Dallas Mavericks the first year, that's fair. Um, things that LeBron does that you can point to him in this GOAT argument when you're trying to grade on such a harsh scale, I think it's fair. Um, however, in terms of just penalizing him because of the era he played in, it's, it's stupid. I mean, could you make the same argument about Jordan in terms of – the level of competition, I would say 
this era of basketball has, I think, superior competition, Agreed. in my opinion, on every single team. So what is, what is that? Did Jordan just play scrubs? <laughs> I mean, did he just play against YMCA, you know, dropouts in the 90s? <laughs> I don't think so. Right. I mean, it's, that's ridiculous. So I think to have an overall argument on, you know, who's the GOAT based on the era they played in, it's stupid. Um, I think you, if you're going to have this argument, then I think you need to look at each guy's, you know, scoring record, um, big time pivotal moments, um, how they affected their team, and not necessarily, you know, the era of kind of physical play. I think that's rather foolish thinking. And this is coming from a, a card carrying member of the Church of Jordan. So um, <laughs> I. I think it's rather foolish to, you know, to penalize LeBron. And in a way, it's backwards dissing, right? It's, you know, if I were to cook you something, Matt, right? And you were to tell me, hey, yeah, you cooked me like a really nice burger, but like Bobby Flay cooks way better burgers than you do. (laughs) It's true. He does. But like, you're still hurting my feelings. I cooked you this this cheeseburger for you. Like, you know, it's true that Bobby Flay is a way better chef than I'll ever be. But yeah, like, you're, you're hurt my feelings by telling me that. So. I don't know you that know, to this... be a fact yet, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good bet. But, you know, you'll have to come over and try. Um, but I think, you know, it's just – to me, I always don't like, you know, just hanging that on LeBron just because it comes off as just, you know, dissing him on a, on a large scale, even though a lot of people say, oh, no, I think LeBron's great. He's awesome. I didn't mean it that way. But you did. You wanted, you wanted to diss him. That's just reality. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, there's always like a counter argument to any point that you bring up. Like in this example, like, oh, LeBron's playing in the softest era of basketball. These guys, oh, they're wrapped in bubble and they never touch each other, blah, 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 whatever. You could also turn that around and say, oh, well, you know, Jordan can't be the GOAT because he played in one of the dumber eras of basketball. They didn't even allow (laughs) zone defense. That was a legal defense back then. You didn't have defensive schemes back then. You had man-to-man defense, and that was it. I mean, you can, can, like, pick and choose – any type of thing, which is why I think, you know, and, and I mean, we, many times on this show, we roll our eyes at the goat debate, but let's be honest, it's kind of fun to explore like all the different facets of it too. It's why it's always going to be a running sports topic. I mean, I don't, I don't like it when it's super inflammatory, like on the media, I like the intelligent point by point kind of discussion and, and trying to expand uh, my, my viewpoint as a fan. Because, I mean, let's be honest, like Jordan and LeBron are both amazing. And I know this is the the kumbaya thing to say, but people, I think it's at the point where most people have them in their top two. Um, and then you're going to pick the GOAT based on your personal preference. Like for some people, that'll be 6-0 and in the finals. For some people, that'll be a 17-year prime that might be 18 years after after next year. Um, They'll be over 20 plus. Yeah. And it's also going to be subjective things like in interviews, like like let's take the recent example of LeBron after the finals. You you know, listeners who have listened to me, you know, I'm a huge fan of LeBron James and and his skill set, what he's done on the court. I mean, incredible. I'm not a fan when LeBron says I want my damn respect. Like to me, that's something that like growing up watching basketball in the 90s. I don't I don't think Jordan would have said something like that, like, 
demand his respect. I think his viewpoint, and maybe I'm wrong here. I obviously I can't speak for, for Jordan, but my, I think his viewpoint would have been like, Oh, I'm going to earn your respect on the court. Like no matter what you are going to walk away respecting me. So when, when you hear like an appeal for that and, and you know, we're, we talked about LeBron's criticism in, in our interview with Harrison. So I want to let some of that stuff be heard there. Um, but you know, of course, there is that point that, yeah, LeBron is unfairly criticized when he makes a pass to an open Danny Green in the playoffs. Yeah, that's unfair criticism. That was the right basketball play. Just happened that that shot was missed. So, you know, both sides of the coin. I think right now we're at a point in time where you can you can certainly make a case for either one as the goat. You can go back and make a case for Kareem as well. Some people will be will be brave enough to do. Um, but it, a lot of it is coming down to personal preference now and LeBron's story. I, I always just need to say that it's, it's still being written. There still seems to be like, there's going to be multiple years left. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just not a big fan of like, oh, this guy is so soft. Cause that, that guy has been through some battles in the playoffs and yeah, it wasn't Bill Lambeer. Um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't call LeBron soft as a player on the court. Yeah, it's it's just foolish thinking, and I, I mean, a lot of people might say this is kind of dumb to say, but I, I actually disappointed in both of them, Stephen A. and Max Kellerman. I expect mm. better just based yeah. on their points. So just to kind of say something like that, I think it's it's rather ridiculous. I I respect I I expect something like that from from Skip Bayless, um, not Stephen A. Smith. It was really weird. You should watch the segment because I, I know Stephen A. Smith like yelling is is his big thing. But he yeah. like starts the segment yelling like before they get even get into the topic. Like he's just like yelling about things in general. So I, maybe just a bad day for Stephen A. Smith, who honestly, I love Stephen A. Smith. I, I'm not trying to rip on the guy. I, I enjoy his content, even when it's ridiculous. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It kind of feels like low hanging fruit to do this whole you know, oh, they're soft routine. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's something that this argument's never going to go away, and we'll be here to talk about it always. Um, was there <laughs> we'll try to make it fun want? and interesting, at least. <laughs> for sure, of course. Um, <laughs> did you want to um, talk about anything else, or should we uh, kind of wrap things up and set up our interviews? Man, let's wrap it up. We, we've got more great interviews for you guys, uh, some, some fun content I hope for you to enjoy. Um, so be sure to stay tuned, check those out. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll, I'll do the plug real quick. We are Hoopsology Podcast, Hoopsology Pod on most social media, especially our, our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, so check us out there. Again, email your questions, your topics, things like that, feedback, etc., to hoopsologypod at gmail.com. And uh, it is a pleasure to have you guys uh, supporting the show. And, and we thank you so much for listening to the show. For sure. Um, now we're going to toss it to our first interview with uh, Dwayne Rankin. And then uh, we'll have the second interview with Harrison Fagan. Enjoy the rest of your week. Um, stay tuned for perhaps another bonus episode featuring um, another interview with an um, NBA insider that will be coming um, later this week. Um, but for now, enjoy the interviews, and we'll talk to you later. Peace. Now joining the show, he is a writer for 
Arizona Central um, covering the Phoenix Suns. So if you want um, all the information um, concerning the Phoenix Suns, um, this is the uh, journalist to go to. Um, his name is Dwayne Rankin. Thanks for joining us, Dwayne. Really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. How you doing? Good, good. Um, so, Dwayne, I wanted to get your insight um, throughout this madness of the pandemic and everything going on with the NBA season. We've been talking to different journalists um, regarding their impressions um, of how they viewed the bubble. So I kind of wanted to ask you the, the same impression. Um, when the Suns were selected to, to go to um, Florida for the bubble, what were your initial impressions? Matt, the way I saw it was – you know, they, they were – the debate was 20 or 22 teams, and and that was part of that voting. And I was like, well, if there's 22, Phoenix will get in. So I wasn't surprised when they went to 22. They voted in for 22 that Phoenix got in. So I, I thought it was a situation where still was unsure of how it was going to work, and they were talking about a play-in, and then I was looking at how far they were back, and I'm like, okay, well – you know, they're just, this is going to be just something they're going to play the string out. And I knew the TV money was a big deal. And so it was a lot of things that, that I was thinking, but the biggest thing was, was, was the risk, the health risk. It was like, you know, are y'all sure this can work? I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And it was like, is this, you know, is this worth it? Is this worth the risk of that? Uh, at the time, not fully knowing all the information about the testing and how they were going to do it. And, and then, uh, you know, but once, once all that started being revealed and then you started looking up that kind of looking up that information and reading, reading on how they were going about this. And then, then you were like, okay, well, this may, this may have a chance, but my initial biggest reaction was health. Okay. Is this worth the risk of, of playing out a season uh, and looking at it from a son's perspective, that there's a that that that's going to be a slim to none chance that they make the playoffs. Uh, is this worth it? And so because of the health the health risk uh, with 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 the virus, so uh, those those were my initial thoughts. Were you surprised that not only the the NBA bubble but the WNBA bubble had a no uh, coronavirus cases? I, once, once I like I said, once I read up on what they were going to do, I thought it had a chance. I thought it would come down to you know discipline, and I was I was saying the team that teams that have the most discipline is going to be the one that's going to do well in the bubble uh, in terms of you know not doing anything crazy, not not trying to lead the bubble, not trying to have people in the bubble. Uh, following, you know, following protocol, I, I thought the teams that did that uh, were going to have the most success. But I think, you know, they they made a commitment. Uh, it's, it's a credit to the to the to the people that were in there, players, coaches, staff. They they really they really made a commitment to to to, to follow. I mean, they had some some slip ups here and there. Uh, you know, they had, sure. and I, I, knew, I knew that was going to happen. You can't, you know, everybody isn't going to isn't going to do it the right way, just by human nature. And then, uh, then there were some things that 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 didn't, uh, you know, it didn't make a huge impact. But you, you know, in talking with people, you knew, okay, well, there's more to, you know, there were slip ups here and slip ups there. But 
once 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 they went one where they didn't have any uh you know positive tests and then they had another one after that i said okay well if they just stay within what they're supposed to be doing uh, they should be fine and then that i think once they established this is how this is this is how it's going to work and once the players completely bought into that uh, then then it became an easier process to maintain uh you know uh, not having any positive tests because all they had to do was continue to follow follow what they've been following once 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 the routine was established and once the uh format was established i wasn't surprised at all that, that they didn't have any you know positive tests you know because it, it had been established this is how this is going to be and once players and everyone bought in then the rest was just a matter of just maintaining, and that's what they did. So also another theme of the bubble was these social justice issues as well. And um, my co-host and I have been discussing this throughout the throughout the season in terms of the NBA ratings um, dipping just through, throughout the bubble. And now right. stats have proven that it's through all sports, really. <laughs> um, the majority of sports are, are down in ratings. So with the social justice message that's been pushed, um, heading into next season, do you think it's worth it um, for the players to still advocate to having Black Lives Matter on the court, um, still having the names changed on jerseys, still pushing that um, social justice um, agenda, uh, or do you think it's, it's detrimental? Do you think it's, it's done some harm to the league? I think that the commitment that was made by the league and by the players after that, uh, you know, they the protest with the games, the playoff games, you know, some, you know, it, it's been established. This, this is that that they're in this together, and you can't. I mean, if, it, if it's all about trying to make a difference and, 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 and combat social injustice and, and racial inequality, and I mean, that, 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 that was the goal. And, and if you're using that platform just for the, you know, used, used it in the bubble and then now to not use it, I mean, that, that doesn't make sense to me. You have to keep pushing. Like, like this is something that's, that, that needs to be, that continues that will continue to need to be addressed. You know, it doesn't stop once the season ended. I mean, they there's still, uh, you know, there's still issues out there, and the issues haven't gone anywhere, and they've been in existence for for decades, and they'll continue to be an issue. So as long as they're continuing to be an issue, then there's a fight that still needs to be fought. And as long as there's a fight that still needs to be fought, then if you're worried about ratings and you're worried about money, then you you know then then you then that's that that's that that's holding up what you're trying to ultimately do is that's change society and so i get it you know you don't want to risk you know losing money and you don't want to risk ratings but at the same time it's, it's it's like you know you can't there's too many things that have been said and done and then the and then the, the backtrack on that 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 that's not a good look. So if if your whole goal was and is to make change, then you have to stick with that. I mean, anyone that is that is fought for for, for rights, they didn't just stop. You know, once 
uh, you know, they they made their mark or took their stand or no, they they kept going. And so, you know, uh, John Lewis kept going. <laughs> he didn't yeah, stop exactly. after right. the uh, march. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. Edmund Pettus Bridge, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't stop after Bloody Sunday. He kept going. You know, Martin Luther King kept going. You know, anyone that has made a difference, a dent in society in terms of making a change for the better, they didn't just stop once one thing was accomplished. They went to the next thing. Sure. And so if the athletes are serious and if the NBA is really serious about it, uh, then they have to keep pressing forward. The, the having Black Lives Matter on the court, uh, that was obviously making a statement, but at the same time, you know, you have to continue to do what you felt was the right thing to do, whether Black Lives Matter is on the court or not. And so there's a bigger objective here. And and if they want to continue to to have use their use their voice use their platform, which is what they've said they're going to do to make change, to help make change, and they have to continue to do that. For sure. Um, I want to shift the conversation to um, how the Phoenix Suns um, did in the bubble. Um, I have a friend of mine who's a huge Phoenix Suns fan. Every day that the Suns were in there, um, he was getting uh, pretty excited just in terms of how they did going undefeated. Um, how did you take the Suns' performance inside the bubble? Um, did you look at it from a, from a standpoint of this is a building blocks towards the future, or did you look at it as maybe this was like kind of a fluke, kind of weird circumstances? Uh, you know, the teams they faced are kind of getting ready for the playoffs. Um, is this something that we can, you know, as as a fan takes you know seriously for next season? And, and also on top of that, with Devin Booker's performance as well, um, I thought he emerged as one of a top superstar in this league. But a, am I overreacting? Or or should we take what the Suns did for fairly serious? Um, I think I, I think if you just if you just look at what just the eight games, the the seeding games in the bubble, if you just look at those, just look at it as an overall. Uh, I've been saying all along. I thought the first five wins were those were big time wins. Um, I know Washington isn't. Uh, wasn't very good, but sure. Washington beat Phoenix, you know, in Phoenix. So uh, they didn't have Bill, and and I, and I, I get all that, but I thought that was a significant win for them to get started. You know, okay, okay. The, the goal was to go eight and zero. You know, they initially were saying it wasn't, but it was. Uh, you know, Cam Johnson eventually came. Hey, look, we're trying to go undefeated. So, uh, so that 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 was the goal to go eight and zero. So once they got past that, I mean, beating the beating Dallas, uh, beating the Clippers, uh, that that was legit. That was legit. You know, it was, it was close games. Um, and then obviously the win over Indiana. I mean, Indiana was was rolling at the time, and T.J. Warren, no one could stop the guy. And then Phoenix did a pretty good job on him. And so when I mean, it's four and oh, okay, that that that's to me. I thought the four and oh, and then the five, then beating Miami. I know Butler didn't play, but that was that was a significant win because if you so you see Miami made it to the finals. So I thought the five and oh was something that okay, they they're showing something. Um, I mean, you, I mean, you got to take into account no fans, no travel. Uh, you know all those things, so that 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 plays a role in what's going on. 
uh, what happened, um, you know. And so they they were, you know, the, I don't think the pressure necessarily was on them. I mean, correction, the pressure was not on them. If they would have lost a couple games, I don't think it would be like, oh, no. The fact that they were just like, hey, look, let's just go hoop and see what happens. The once they got to five and zero, oh, then the teams that they were playing after that were resting guys. Had guys hurt, Philly, OKC, Dallas didn't play Luca in the second half. So you know you you so those last three, uh, they they you know they had they had some help, but the yeah. last one against Dallas, I mean that that was a must. You know it's, it, when you was now seven and zero, oh, now it's a must win. Okay, we got to win. And so even under those circumstances, uh, with Dallas not being full strength, it still was still was a must win for Phoenix. And so I, I thought that you know, so for them to come out and play they way play the way they played, uh, you know, they they got something to build off of. I mean, the, the, they've got some young guys that showed up, and uh, and and Aiden didn't have the kind of eight game stretch that that they would hope that he had, but he had moments and and throughout the throughout those eight games and and to not do it and to do it without Ubre and do it without Baines, that 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 showed something. And so, you know, you're looking at that and you're going, okay, wow, you know, they 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 play well. Uh, they they bought in to what for them has got to be okay, look. When they get in a stretch next season where it's not going well, you know, Monty Williams can always go and say, see, we're getting away from what, what we what we did in the bubble. We're getting away with we're sure. getting away from what 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 helped us win games. So that's always going to be a reference point now. Like whenever this thing starts going bad, he can always go that. Like, you know, this this is something he can always pull out and say, hey. You know this. This is this is this is why we are where we are, because we have yet to figure out how to play consistent. And he, and he can go back. He can say stuff like, you know, you got to be more disciplined. You have to. There's things that he can make. He can make reference to that that can that they can go. Okay, yeah, you know what, you're right. Now it's up to them to buy into it. Uh, sure. Next season, there's there's still there's still you know, look at the, you know, you look at what they're, what they accomplished, but they still were 26 and 39 before the ball. So you can't, you can't just dismiss that and go, okay, well, there ain't no, 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 they were 26 and 39 and they were hurt a lot. I get that, but still you were 26 and 39. So, uh, so there's, 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 there's a mixed bag on that. I mean, they can build on it, but they still got to understand that, Hey, they got a, a, a way, 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 ways to go particularly within the West, which is, which seems to be getting stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, but, De but Devin Booker, uh, I, I thought that the way he uh, played in terms of, you know, moments when it wasn't going well, I, I, and, then, and then the way he would respond to that, I thought, I thought that was maybe more significant than when it was rolling. Because when it's rolling, I mean, he, he He's one of the best players in the league. Uh, Agreed. When, when he got it going, I mean, you can't. I mean, the guy has move upon move ability to score. Is, is just you know he, he's one of the uh, best. He's he's an elite scorer. He he can score any way you want. 
But when it's not going well, when he's in foul trouble, when the team is is struggling, when 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 things aren't going his way, uh, that's when you have to see. That's where the growth uh, showed in the bubble, where when it wasn't going well, and then he and then he 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 would, he would respond. Uh, you know, in a game where he would come back out after maybe have been in foul trouble and playing well, and and I thought that the what the bubble did was, uh, you know, Devin found himself where hey, you know, he's learning more about his teammate than he ever had because he was around him all the time. So that to me, this was important because now he he now has a comfort level with God. When you're the star of the team, uh, you know, there, there there there's a sense of distancing even 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 when you looked at lebron whenever he would come out of the games in the bubble he didn't sit with the team he sat off to the side there's just something about being that guy that you know you're still there's still some isolation in that you know uh so there's always going to be that but i I thought that Devin uh, got to know his teammates better and i think that'll help him moving forward and him understanding, hey, you know, it's, it's okay to bond with with the guys. It's okay, uh, you know, to have to have a closer relationship with with with, with guys. And I, you know, not that he didn't have, not that he didn't get along with guys, or he, you know, I'm not. I don't want to give that off that impression that he was just he was Mr. Isolation because he wasn't. But they got closer, and uh, that that and, and Monty Williams again. I've been saying all along. I'll keep saying that he was the best move they made that summer and he continues to be the best move they've made since they hired the guy. Uh, he has got young players to buy into the whole idea of playing a way that's very difficult, hard, uh, you know, get after it, uh, you know, sharing the ball. Uh, yeah, everyone says they want to do it, but the truth is, there's not a player that's on the court that doesn't think they can get there at any time they want. So to have that a situation where you're sharing the ball and all that, and, you know, and, and, and playing unselfish uh, and then battling on the defensive end. And uh, so for, to get them to really embrace that in the bubble, uh, they've got something to build on. Now, whether that leads to a playoff, uh, playoff seed or they get in the playoffs don't know that because again they're playing against teams in the west that are just insanely good but they do have a they have a building block the bubble established a building block for them and then we'll see we'll be interested to see what they do moving forward for sure um Dwayne, before we let you go um i want to um, get your thoughts on an article you recently wrote um about the nba's uh, gm school which had a um arizona resident um participating in it can you kind of give us some background on how that competition works and um why should um, nba fans check it out i just think it's very interesting on how they they put the contestants through so many different things uh you know, they, they start them off kind of, okay, let's see, we'll see your knowledge of the game or your knowledge of analytics and the collective bargaining agreement. Then they had them, you know, doing the draft and they couldn't pick MVPs. So you can't pick LeBron. You can't pick Giannis. You can't pick Harden. You can't pick Curry. You can't pick Westbrook. And so, uh, you know, you can't pick Durant. And, and, and so, 
So, you know, it kind of made it a little more challenging. Like if those guys are on the board, okay, well, yeah, I'm picking LeBron. Well, sure. You know, but if without on the board, it made it a little bit more of a challenge and they only had 24 seconds to make a pick. And then they had to come up with the strategy of how they would build a team and then the whole, then they had to defend their picks and the, and the mock press conference and, and, uh, and then, you know, so it was, so they had all these different challenges and, you know, you know, had to make trades and and so so it was like you know being a GM, I, you know having the having a disgruntled player who said he was about to get traded and it's it is Jason Terry who we know is not shy of uh, speaking his mind uh, from his years in the league. So to have all those different hiring a coach and so to have all those different. Uh, challenges, which reality show, that's what they do. It's like, okay, here's the next challenge or the challenge, the challenge, the challenge, narrow it down, narrow it down. And so, and so to put them through all of that and then have a winner emerge and then to be able to, okay, we're going to put that winner amongst, uh, you know, we're going to have them meet leagues, league executives. And that the interesting thing about this year was that was obviously filmed before the pandemic because obviously, you know, there were no masks on, they didn't have any of that. So you so you know, so that was something that it was a whole different um thing that would have if they would do it now, uh it would be a virtual. But because they got it, they had it done before the pandemic really hit in America. Uh, so it was it was it, so all those all those elements involved, uh, it, it's worth watching because I, I I think, you know, there's a lot of us out there who watch whether you're our, whether you're in the media, whether you're with you know us in the media, or you know from the average fan to that hardcore fan who follows the game to the you know to a coach or to a player or anyone who, who who's attached to the league in some form or fashion, you're seeing you know people who are trying to or trying to live it and want to be in and 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 and, are, and have gone this route to try to get, be a part of the NBA. And so that, that takes a lot of, you know, it, you be chosen is one thing, but then you're chosen. Then you gotta, you've got four other people up there that are, that are thinking I'm just as smart as you about, about this sport and about this league. That that's having been in competitive environments where you're selected uh, amongst a group of people and then you're and then and then you're going through something similar in terms of challenges uh with a group of people that 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 could be tough and so for them to be able to hold you know hold firm um, and of course people got eliminated but i i think that if you thought you knew the nba i think watching the show will make you go oh yeah yeah i knew that or you'll go oh i didn't know that I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So really, it 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 hits on a lot of different levels, and uh, to see those people put in those positions and 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 do well, and I you know I know you know uh, Wes Wilcox, he's one of the judges. I, I knew Wes when Wes was back in Cleveland. So you know I, I you know so to see some familiar familiar face uh, being part of that, and then uh, knowing what, and then obviously talking with the, the winner. Uh, before she was quote the winner, and I, I knew she had won, but they didn't want to they didn't want to give that out before the show aired. But I knew she had won. But 
so didn't talk to her about it uh, before and after. Uh, it, it, it's definitely worth checking out. I mean, it's not that long. I would dare to say they've watched all three episodes on YouTube. You're probably going to watch, uh, you know, probably an hour and a half. It's probably total. Um, but I thought it was well done. I, I, I think it was better than last year. I think what they did this year was much better than what they did last year. So uh, if they keep it going, um, you know, you, you're liable to see, you know, it should it should continue to improve because they 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 were able to pick some things from the last first season or first first one that they improved upon. And now they keep doing that. They got something on their hands. Uh, I thought it was very entertaining. Uh, I thought it was very entertaining. I, w- I wouldn't mind seeing uh, it be extended to, to, to players. Maybe there, maybe there's five players out there that think that they should be in the NBA and just haven't got the opportunity and then maybe have them, have them, have them go to have split them up and have them each go to a training camp and see if they can make the team. I, I think that would be entertaining uh, to, to see that. I, I think there's a lot of ways they can go. Uh, coach, there's a lot of ways they could take the GM school and expand it. But I think the GM school is something that should continue, no question about it. Well, if you're an NBA fan, please check it out. I've seen um, most of the first episode of the, the most recent season. Um, I thought it was um, really compelling, a fun watch. Um, Dwayne, yeah. um, go ahead and plug any any um, other projects you're working on, your Twitter account, where we can find you on social media. Twitter account is Dwayne Rankin, D-U-A-N-E-R-A-N-K-I-N. It's the, that's my Twitter account. I'm also on Instagram. It's under uh, Rank Barnes. That's a long story to explain that name, but I'm not, you, know, you don't have time to hear all that. Uh, so uh, the, the, the next thing I'm working on right now is just uh, I'm working on a story about, you know, should the sun stay pat or should they, uh, you know, try to make trades, try to try to try to try to bring some guys in. They brought in nine new guys the previous season. And so. Uh, you know, do, do, do they do they reshuffle the deck again or do they stay pat? You know, you look at Denver, Denver stay pat. They they brought in Grant. And obviously Porter got healthy enough to play. But they pretty much have stayed pat for like three, four years. And, you know, now they, they made it to the Western Conference Finals. So do they stay? So so that's an example for Phoenix to say, OK, well, Denver stayed pat. You know, can we do the same? Can 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 the can the fan base wants Phoenix to make moves? They want Van Vliet. <laughs> <laughs> they would mind uh, uh, Jeremiah Grant. Uh, you know, there was some guy that was lobbying, I guess, to get that for Damian Lillard, and Lillard shot it down. So they 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 want change. They want Cat. You know, Carly Town. They, they they're just like. Bring this guy in. Bring that guy in. And it's just like, okay, you know, it sounds good, but, you know, maybe patience can be a virtue for him. You know, Ronnie Williams has talked about being patient. He's talked about, you know, you can't, you know, you know, he, he you, you've you got it. It takes years, not months, uh, to build a, to build a playoff team. And so sounds great, but when you haven't been, the Suns haven't been in the playoffs since 2010, 
and the, and 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 losing was bad. I mean, they like we're talking like second worst record in franchise history the year before. Uh, bad picks, bad trades, multiple coaches. You go on and on with what has gone wrong, and so that's why this eight and old thing in the bubble resonate. Like, oh, we got something here, and it's like, you know, Mike Williams is probably pumped the brakes. We still got a ways to go as a team to get where where where, where we would like to be. And so uh, I'm working on a story just to kind of say, okay, if you stay pat, this is what this could look like. If they trade, okay, this is, you know, if you get this person in, this is what this could look like. Uh, who, who, who might be someone that you can trade? Uh, who might be someone you might be able to get? Uh, just so, just, just exploring, you know. I mean, we're, we're all, you know, the schedule is off because of the pandemic. It is, <laughs> big time. So, so schedule's off. So now it's, you know, we're talking about things now that truth be told, if everything was normal, we'd be talking about the season starting in days. Um, you know, so it's 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 definitely a different time, and and you know, that's to me that's the most important thing uh, trying to um, you know get a much better handle on the pandemic. But 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 definitely uh, that that that's what I'm working on. I mean, I'm always working on something. Whether that's, a, you know, for the good and for the bad, because, you know, you have sleepless nights because you always your your mind is thinking, OK, what can I do next? What what what's out there? What can I address? Um, who can I get interview wise? So it's, it's a it's a constant. But, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's what we do. It's what we do. For sure. Well, Dwayne, I thank you very much um, for, for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Appreciate your insight on the Suns. And yeah, we'll, we'll keep an, an eye on them because they, they were probably the, the main story um, during Canada bubble restart for sure. So th- thanks for your insight and appreciate joining us. Hey, no problem. Y'all take it easy. Be safe. Now we have the good fortune in welcoming our next guest. Um, he is the Lakers beat writer and editor-in-chief for Lakers SB Nation. Um, his name is Harrison Fagan. Thanks for joining us, Harrison. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, guys, I'm happy to do it. Like, I mean, as, like, interview requests go, like, I, I mean, getting to talk about, the, like, the Lakers championship is a lot better than what I've been doing the last uh, several years, I'll say. So, um, you know, I've been, I've been saying yes to everyone, basically. Awesome. Well, um, we are happy to have you on. So let's hop into it. And before kind of hopping into the specifics of the the Lakers series with the Miami Heat, I want to kind of ask you for some uh, context, even before um, all this pandemic stuff got started. And and that was with uh, Kobe's untimely death um, earlier this year. And the the players um, for the Los Angeles Lakers um, dedicating their season um, to him and his daughter. Um, since you covered the team, can you kind of take us in the, the, the locker room, so to speak, and kind of describe what this season was like, you know, in terms of honoring Kobe and then the, the Lakers actually winning the title? Um, what does this championship mean um, for Los Angeles compared to um, the other rings that they have won in the past? Yeah, so, I, I mean, just to answer that last part right off the bat, like, I, I think this one clearly means more to the city than, like, uh, most, not not even just because of 
like, you know, Kobe's tragic death and the death of his daughter and the seven others on that plane or on that helicopter, excuse me. Um, I, just, like, e even outside of that, which is definitely a factor, like, just think of the 2020 that we all just went through. Like, this year, whoever won the title, like, it was going to be more meaningful for that fan base just because it was a rare reason to celebrate and be happy. Like, we just haven't had a lot of that this year as just, like, you know, like, uh, as the human race. And so, like, much less Lakers fans. But then when you factor in, like, losing Kobe, arguably the most beloved Laker of all time, you know, like, maybe Magic Johnson is up there. But other than him, like, it, it, it's Kobe. And, uh, like, the the city came to a stop. I mean, I think that there was this tendency sometimes for like fans of other teams or other organizations or whatever to like, be like, Oh, like this, like this Kobe thing, like this is an overwrought media narrative. Like none of these guys really played with him outside of Dwight Howard. Like it's, I mean, if you were here in Los Angeles at the time when it happened, you would not be saying that like, not only like like outside of the Lakers locker room and the Lakers organization, like the entire city, I've never seen it come to a stop like that before. I mean, obviously pre-pandemic, but like uh, like it almost looked like at times what it looks like now. There were just fewer cars in the streets. Like it was like just people weren't really like going out. So like the entire city came to a stop and was in mourning with people going to the practice facility, going to LA Live. And then when you factor in that like this organization like, yes, I mean, most of the players on this roster did not play with Kobe. Most of them looked up to him, just like many NBA players. But this organization is a very tight-knit, small, like, almost like a family business in some ways. Like, because of how small and insular it is, almost everyone in that organization knew Kobe in some form or fashion, had watched him grow up in many cases from a 17-year-old to, you know, like a, like a 40-year-old girl dad. Like he, like he was kind of, like he grew up in LA and he became like the person that he was uh, when he died, like it, with the Lakers in large part, like more of his, he was a Laker for more of his life than he wasn't, I, I'm uh, or almost so, or, or almost as much. And like, so when you factor that in, and then also, like, LeBron knew him. They weren't best friends, but LeBron knew him, like, pretty well and is, like, a fellow star and someone that he could relate to. Like, he felt this loss. Like, you saw that he got the tattoo. He also hung Kobe's jersey in his locker for the rest of the time that the at least the media was allowed in locker rooms. That obviously is no longer the case, so I don't know if he did that throughout the rest of the playoff run, but he did that. And, you know, he had the 24 on his, like, on his finger tape. Like, Anthony Davis is a guy who Kobe took under his wing when he was with the Olympics like he got he also got a tattoo to honor Kobe Quinn Cook grew up a Lakers fan rooting for him diehard he was out mourning with fans at Staples Center there was a picture someone didn't even realize it was Quinn Cook he, it just got it just happened the other people noticed but of him leaned over a barricade just crying the day that it happened at Staples Center like you know you go Dwight Howard couldn't talk to the media for almost two weeks after it happened like you just you go up and down the line this was something that really hit the team hard and like them trying to win it for him I continually kind of push back on like I don't know if we as fans can say that like I don't think that that's a fair expectation to put on the team but it was something that they very much put on themselves gotcha and, and just to follow up with that for LeBron specifically because you, you touched on um LeBron and Kobe not having like the tightest of relationship um while while Kobe was alive but 
you know, once Kobe retired, um, just listening to just an interview, just LeBron said Kobe seemed happy or just being with his daughter, um, just with the pressures off the game. And Kobe was more available for that mentorship role for LeBron. Um, I guess where I'm getting at is now that LeBron has won the title, I'm wondering, has Laker fans fully accepted him as a Laker? He seemed almost kind of like an outsider despite his status. Maybe I'm wrong, but just from a uh, a non-Laker fan just um, looking in, into um, kind of that lens, him winning this championship, is he kind of indoctrinated um, into that culture 100%? Or do you think he's kind of like a little bit of that outsider just because, you know, he didn't actually play his entire career in Los Angeles? Yeah, you know, I think on some level, like, that was that was a little bit of an overwrought media narrative at times, like, when he signed. Like, there definitely were vocal minorities of the fan base that were like, no, I'm a Kobe guy, I'll never respect LeBron, he's just a mercenary, he's just coming out here to retire, like, that. Like there was that stuff. And you saw the murals get the face, like, you know, Lakers fans always want to say, oh, that was angry Clippers fans or Celtics fans living in L.A., like, I mean, I don't know if that was actually them, like, that That was probably just idiots, whoever they're fans of. Um, but, like, look, that was a little bit of a thing, I do think. I, I think it was, like, an overplayed narrative at times, but it was a little bit of a thing. Like, but at the same time, like, you know, I don't even think – I think it was before the title. I honestly think, like, the night that he really became a Laker, like, all caps, was the first game after Kobe died. I, I think the way that he – spoke to that crowd in Staples Center like obviously that was bigger than sports that was bigger than his status as a Laker but that was him really that was the first time that he really needed to take a leadership role and like lead the fan base through something together and help them all collectively breathe and I think that that night like was the first time that he like he almost felt like a Laker lifer that night with the types of with the way that he spoke like how passionate it was how clearly emotional he was about it and I think that like and then I think the title you know obviously from a plan standpoint completely cements that like you know Lakers fans know like once you win a title in LA like you're never buying a drink in the city again like you are like from top of the roster to you know in this case 17th man now that there's two-way contracts like all those guys are going to be remembered forever at, for winning this title especially because it came you know in a year when we've all dealt with so much and also like at the end of like the least successful decade in Lakers history like I, I think that that and I know that like fans of other teams that are not the Lakers are like oh 10 years like big deal for Lakers fans that is a fairly long time if you look back at franchise history and I think it does make it a little bit sweeter and of course like I think LeBron is going to be more fully embraced than he even already was after something like that. Like every team embraces its players more once they're a champion. Harrison kind of piggybacking off that, that idea that you just mentioned um, with this being another turning point, this time a positive turning point for the Lakers, where would you right now, of course, you know, we haven't had much time to kind of digest this championship, but where would you rank this specific Lakers team among many of those, those great Lakers franchises. I mean, I assume, you know, probably behind Showtime Lakers, early two thousands Lakers, but um, how do you kind of see this team in the scope of the Lakers team history? Yeah. You know, it, it's tough to say because we haven't seen the end of their run. Like, because like part of the reason those 09 2010 Lakers are so beloved by the fan base, even though I think historically they've become a little bit underrated now, like the team that, you know, the Kobe Powell team that made three finals, one, two of them kind of went out with like an ignominious exit. 
uh, in the second round the following year trying to three-peat. Like, I think that that team has become a little bit underrated by outsiders, but it's still very beloved because they, you know, they won two titles. It was Kobe's final championships. Like, obviously, the three-peat Lakers are beloved for a whole other reason, just like dominating the league and dominating the playoffs for three straight years and, you know, going to, like, uh, another finals besides that. Like, I think, and then the Showtime, I, I, you know, I was born in 91, so I wasn't alive for, like, those, so it's hard for me to say. I feel like this team would still, at best, be third behind the three-peat Lakers and the Showtime team, maybe ahead of those Kobe Powell teams, but I still don't know if they're, like, quite there yet. Like, that feels blasphemous right now, like, Mm -hmm. especially for Lakers fans, I think, to put them ahead of, like, a team with Kobe on it. That said, like... This team is really, really appreciated and embraced by the city of Los Angeles. I think not just because of like they won, but also the way that they went about it. Like this is the best Lakers defense I think that we've ever seen in the entire franchise's history. It's certainly the most versatile if you want to argue about best. Like this is a team that could play any style and beat basically any team at their own style and just switch on the fly and make adjustments. They they lost back to back games. They lost clusters of games twice all year before the bubble like they came to play every single night this wasn't a load management team like I think this was a really beloved team also like just winning the title after you know like I said like the least successful stretch in franchise history in a year that was so bad like you know they're definitely up there but I think that we honestly have to see where the run ends before like Lakers fans are going to be willing to place them somewhere for sure because obviously like it's a lot different if they repeat or if they three-peat or like what, like I'm not guaranteeing that that's going to happen, but if it does, that obviously moves you up the rankings a little bit. Looking at the scope of the NBA as it, as it stands coming into next year, obviously we have a whole off season to get through. Um, Does it surprise you that the Lakers are already favored to win the title next year? I mean, obviously we're running back, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, we figure, and and they've proven themselves this year as as that dynamic duo, as and and kind of honestly like a, a throwback to almost like Kobe and Shaq, where you know through the 2010s we had you know big threes all around the league, and and even starting back in 2008 with the Celtics, the, I, to me it kind of feels like a throwback to have LeBron and Anthony Davis, and then a cast of of obviously a great team and great role pieces that fit in around them. Uh, Does it surprise you that they're already favored next year? Would you put anyone else uh, ahead of them at this point? I know you got to quote unquote, you got to beat the man to be the man or whatever. They, they have the title belt until they defend it. Um, But would you place anyone else ahead of them at this point? So no to both. I am not surprised. And no, I would not because I mean, number one, like, the Lakers were the Vegas favorites all of last season because Vegas always knows like that people are going to put money on the on the Lakers regardless. Like there's big money to bet on the Lakers. So they're generally the favorites regardless of like where experts are necessarily placing them. Um, you know, like not obviously experts outside of the odds makers, uh, like media experts and stuff. And then no, I would not put another team ahead of them just because of that idea that you mentioned. And also like, we haven't seen what these other teams are going to do in free agency and stuff like that. So like, as of right now, the Lakers just prove that they're the best team. So like, I I think Mm -hmm. that 
like, you know, there is some degree of like, okay, like, let's say Milwaukee, like, I don't know, like, if they trade for Chris Paul, like, all of a sudden, that's like a different equation a little bit. Um, or, you know, like, we don't know what the Clippers are going to do if they have any moves up their sleeves, or we don't know if like the Lakers are going to lose guys and not be able to replace them. I think that's unlikely, but like, it could happen. Um, and so like, but that said, like, we don't know that that's going to happen. So I think right now, especially with the Lakers looking set to retain Anthony Davis, looking like they have at least probably a decent shot to retain some of their other free agents, as well as add to this current core with the, you know, like the full mid-level exception, which it looks like they're going to have and will be a like more of a weapon maybe this summer because the market is kind of dry. Like, I-, I do think that there's a pretty good chance that they actually end up being better going into next year. I actually, last summer, I didn't really think that they were going to win a title this year. I thought there was a chance, but I didn't necessarily think they were the favorites. And I thought that it might take them another summer to really get the full MLE and do all of that stuff and really improve that roster and go for it the next year. But, you know, they proved me and a lot of other people wrong. Harrison, you mentioned the Clippers, and I wanted to ask you this, just based on um, Jared Dudley doing an interview with Bill Simmons. And he stated that the, the Lakers were disappointed that the, the Clippers weren't able to, to, to meet the Lakers, um, you know, in the playoffs to kind of de- declare the representative for the for the Western Conference. Um, do you think, in your mind, the Lakers not facing off with the Clippers? I don't know. I don't know if diminishes the title is not the right word, but certainly like a disappointment just in terms of, you know, not having that kind of L.A. L.A. battle. I mean, the Clippers topped a whole bunch of crap. Um, about the Lakers just through this entire playoffs and just the Clippers talk a bunch of crap about other teams as well. What did she make of the Clippers um, not being able to kind of hold her into the bargain? And then really, I mean, I, I found this laughable also just, you know, people starting to kind of create the narrative that LA was, was becoming the Clipper town, which is pretty ridiculous. But um, yes. just like you mentioned through um, this past decade with the lack of Lakers success, that narrative is starting to gain some steam, pretty ridiculous. But now it's that narrative like over once and for all. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that, I mean, number one, that narrative was never real. Like, I mean, I do think sure. that that was something that even Los Angeles media tried to play up a little bit because like, you know, Look, from an inside baseball or I guess in this case basketball perspective, like it would be lucrative and good for these media members and for the media industry as a whole in Los Angeles if the Clippers were a team that generated interest as well, because then all of a sudden, you know, the amount of media coverage that the Lakers get double it because if the Clippers were as popular or whatever, then all of a sudden you can devote that much coverage, that much resources to hiring journalists to cover those teams. So I always felt like that was a little bit of a self-serving narrative that kind of ignores the way that people become fans of things. Like, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know you guys all that well, but like, I'm assuming you probably became fans of most of the teams that you are fans of because of like, like that was the team that your parents rooted for, or at least in my experience, that's most of the time, or it's like geographic location or whatever. Like, you know, no Lakers fan, just because the Lakers have 10 down years is going to be like, you know what, I'm going to raise my son or daughter, a Clippers fan, you know, (laughs) like that just doesn't happen. And so if you're in a household where even if the Clippers are better, but your parents are like, oh, no, Clippers, they're a laughing stock. They suck. Like, you're not going to root for them unless you just hate your parents, which I guess is possible. But, like, no Laker fan was going to raise their kid a Clippers fan. So I always, like, I, I thought that narrative was a little bit ridiculous and self-serving, like, always. Um, but, you know, as far as the Lakers and the Clippers go, 
you know, I, I know, and like, it was kind of refreshing to hear Dudley put this out on the podcast. Like the Lakers wanted to play the Clippers and the Lakers like were, um, you know, this is something that people in the organization, like, I, I don't know how familiar either of you guys are with the LA area, but there's like a freeway interchange kind of near LAX, the heading toward from that area, heading towards the Lakers practice facility in El Segundo and which a lot of players and a lot of team personnel you know, there's only so many ways you can come in. And that's one of the most frequent ways, I would say, or at least for a lot of people that live, like you know, like it towards the northern parts of L.A. Like they would come in from uh, that direction. And like there was a giant right there near that freeway interchange. There was a giant billboard with that. It was like some we over me like slogan that the Clippers marketing department, uh, like street lights over spotlights or whatever, you know, one of their like tacky campaign slogans. And like, you know, Lakers employees like all year like you know would kind of privately like laugh at that or think it was really lame or corny or whatever and so it was funny to hear Dudley say that like you know he was driving by it like uh, LeBron like other players were driving by it and they were like f this basically and like I, I think that they were I mean to some degree there's a, I'm sure disappointment from them that they weren't actually able to beat the Clippers because that was something that they clearly both teams took a lot of pride in wanting to beat the other one and you know prove their superiority in the city at the same time like you know, I think the idea that it tarnishes their title is like wrong because look like the Clippers, you know, it's not, it's not the Lakers fault that the Clippers didn't live up to our outside expectations, right? Like the Nuggets beat them. The Nuggets came back from down three, one. That's as thoroughly as you can beat a team. Like the Clippers clearly were not a championship contender this year, regardless of what preseason, you know, expectations any of us had for them because a real championship contender doesn't blow a three, one lead, you know? Like, so I, I think that, I don't think that it really tarnishes it. I do think that it is probably disappointing for the players and for Lakers fans that they didn't actually get to beat those guys and how satisfying that would have been. At the same time, you know, I went on, I used to co-host Locked on Lakers. I went on that podcast the day, the night the Clippers lost. Uh, my my friend and co-host Anthony invited me to jump back on. And we literally spent the entire first segment just dying of laughter at the Clippers blowing that lead. <laughs> and like, you know, it's one of the most responded to segments I think we've ever done because I think, you know, if the Lakers weren't going to beat the Clippers, that was by far the most satisfying outcome for Lakers fans. They didn't even make it there. Gotcha. And I, I totally agree. It was just it was laughable just to, to see just the Clippers just totally fall apart. Um, it's like Dudley he, said, like they didn't they yeah. clearly didn't want to be there. Right. Like, no. I mean, that's what he said. And he's, I don't think he's wrong. Like, I, I think that they clearly like their, their chemistry was not good. And I think we saw that all season, no matter what Lou Williams says in the Instagram comments. Yeah, that totally seems like more and more is coming out about that, that uh, we're hearing about chemistry issues with that team, which. It makes me wonder if, if they'll even meet up with the Lakers again next year. But, you know, we'll we'll see. Time will tell. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, like, you know, everybody's trying. They failed. So now everybody wants to point the finger elsewhere. I mean, that's how it goes, right? When there's like, especially when there's a complete collapse like that. And so, like, you know, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that we're getting a lot more details about the Clippers locker room now that Doc Rivers was essentially fired, even though they said that they let him step down and, you know, headed out of town. I'll just say that. Um, I wanted to ask you, Harrison, also about the Lakers, specifically in the finals against the Miami Heat. And just uh, some some background, I, I'm a Bulls fan, and just uh, seeing Jimmy Butler actually getting to um, be highlighted in the finals was, was a treat for me personally. But they way exceeded my expectations. I thought the Lakers were going to sweep them, quite frankly. Um, and I think once... Um, 
you saw the Lakers make those defensive adjustments. Um, they handled the Miami Heat pretty easily. Um, I wanted to ask you, just in that series, in terms of LeBron's um, leadership qualities, in terms of the decision making that he he makes on, I guess, a nightly basis, not only in the playoffs. Um, do you think we'll get to a point in which the NBA fan base will ultimately kind of trust what LeBron does on the court? Because it just seems like if LeBron makes a mistake or just just, just any kind of like mishap, he just gets killed, even though he's a legend and in my mind, the greatest player of this era. Um, And yet I just don't think he gets his respect. I mean, he reflected that in, you know, um, the trophy presentation. You know, he wanted his damn respect, and it's just astonishing to me that he's not getting it. Do, do you know why? Is it that, just that ghost of Michael Jordan that is going to haunt him just until he, you know, <laughs> perishes one day? Um, what it was, I guess what, what I'm asking you is just, do you think Jordan, excuse me, LeBron, it will be able to really exist on his own as kind of one of the legendary players of the league and not having – constantly the media and fans second guess every single decision he makes so no i mean well first of all like you said you were a bulls fan i apologize like i'm sorry uh you know <laughs> for that uh like but you know like maybe maybe you guys will uh like rebuild you know it, you can't possibly have a worse coach now than you did so like you've made progress exactly. um and like oh. you know anywhere was up from anywhere was up from uh from you know the jim boylan era um and to answer your question like I don't think that we're ever going to get to a time when LeBron isn't second guess just because like that's the daily media culture that we have now. Like they got to fill a, a couple hours of TV or radio or whatever it may be. And like, you know, should LeBron shoot or pass when he's quadruple teamed, like, you know, is a storyline <laughs> because of that. Like, you know, Danny Green is a 40% like career three point shooter who missed an open shot. Like, yes, he struggled in the finals, but that was still a, like LeBron objectively made the correct play. I don't think that we're ever going to get to a time where he's not second guess for that. I, I do think that the Michael Jordan part is like definitely a component in that. I Especially because like now everyone in the media or like most people in the media that are, you know, of that like 40 ish, like age, like the people that are on TV doing radios that have like come into the primes of their own careers. Like, they all grew up watching MJ for the most part. And like the inevitable feeling, like everyone that you watch as like your first goat is probably going to be your goat. And then you look at everyone else through the prism of that. And so I think that like Michael Jordan kind of taught us that like, even though, you know, he obviously made high profile passes in his career too, to Paxson and Kerr and, you know, everybody remembers those. Um, But for some reason we forget about them when LeBron passes and the guy misses. Uh, But like, I think Michael Jordan, you never got the sense that like there was like he was not passing because he was double teamed. He was passing like because he felt like that was a way to hurt, like uh, like hurt the defense or whatever. There was just a different narrative about it. Like he was never a guy that was afraid to shoot over two guys or whatever, whereas LeBron is almost hurt by his own perfection at reading the game like he he's a guy that when he makes mistakes it's very rare and it's usually because he's just not fully engaged like when he is fully engaged I don't know that I've ever seen a guy that makes correct decisions from a basketball perspective more often like in my time you know like watching the game since the Shaq growing up watching the Shaq and Kobe Lakers like it's it's almost like a computer like I remember uh like 
Zach Lowe did a story a number of years ago on like the ra- like some teams were using this like missile tracking program to track player movement, whatever. And like they would have these player ghosts, basically, that they went to the optimal position at the optimal speed and read the game, whatever. And like one of the like anecdotes in that story that was that LeBron literally moves to the right spot faster than the computer analyzes it like and does. Um, if I'm remembering that correctly, and I hope I'm not butchering it, but like, I think that he, like, because he's perfect so often, like, there's no, like, like people don't have the sense that he's going to shoot over those. So I think it becomes a criticism of like, is he afraid to type thing versus like, he's always making the right basketball play. And look, that's not always going to work out, but shooting over the defense won't always work out. And so I I think that people are going to second guess him, like regardless of what he does, like your Skip Bayless is of the world or whatever. That said, LeBron gets enough respect. Like all of these guys, like we saw during like the last dance, like how little it takes for these guys to take something as a personal, that became personal for me. Michael Jordan's like, oh, like George Carl didn't say hi to me in the finals. So that's why I won. Like, otherwise I wouldn't have been motivated. You know what I mean? Like like LeBron, LeBron started calling himself the washed King because he missed the playoffs one year and, you know, people criticized him for it uh, and like criticized the Lakers for it. Like, like, Oh, shock. Like, but did anyone really think he was washed? Like, I don't think anyone really thought that. I think maybe people thought that he wouldn't be able to stay healthy, but like, did anyone think he was washed? Like, no, I don't think so. Um, so like, I think that for him, he's looking for the people that are doubting him. And so he, of course, sees more of that. And that colors his perspective because all of these guys did that. Like Kobe was, you know, was constantly happy to throw it in the face of the media when he overcame some odd that he saw like two people picked that he couldn't do or whatever, you know, most famously his, uh, his amnesty, that tweet after Mark Cuban said the Lakers should amnesty him. And he went off for 60 points against the Mavs, like later the same week. Um, you know, like all these guys look for slights. So like LeBron gets enough respect, like, come on, like people, depending on who you ask, he is either the first or second best basketball player of all time for like 90%, 95% of people, I think. So like, you know, LeBron gets enough respect, I think, but at the same time, I'm not surprised he thinks he doesn't. I think all that's really well put Harrison. Um, one more question for you. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on Frank Vogel's fit as the head coach of this team. Obviously, I mean, any coach that, in my opinion, I mean, if you win a title, of course, you deserve a lot of credit. If you win that title against Coach Spolstra, who is I mean, a proven coaching genius, in in my opinion, in this league. Yeah, maybe the best coach in the league. Like, he's up there, certainly. I would agree. Yeah, Um I wanted to get your thoughts on Vogel's fit as the head coach and I mean, really coming out of relative obscurity to come and coach this Lakers team, which as we know in the past, it's, it's been a really high pressure position to coach LeBron because expectations are so high. And then you put LeBron on one of the all time greatest sports franchises ever in the Lakers. Uh, can you speak to the job that that Coach Vogel did this year and how you like him as the fit of the head coach of this team? Yeah, so I mean, I think that he did an incredible job this year. I think people, like they are with all LeBron coaches, like Spolster included, when LeBron was there, uh, mm-hmm. I think are reticent to give credit to the coach because there's this perception that LeBron makes a lot of those decisions. And like that perception is somewhat of a reality. Like LeBron does make a lot of decisions for himself. And on some level, like, 
you're not going to reinvent the way that LeBron plays offense. You know what I mean? Like LeBron is a system unto himself, I think. And so wherever he goes, you know that there's going to be a certain diet of pick and rolls. There's going to be a certain diet of dribble drives. He's going to create double teams and pass out to a shooter. You're going to try and move around and space the floor. Like on some level, like a LeBron, LeBron is the offense on like, you know, to a degree that said, I think one of the things that Vogel deserves credit for rather than criticism is working with that. Like rather than trying to like reinvent the wheel or come up with some unique way, like I I think maybe the thing that they did differently this year that LeBron teams haven't always done. And in part because he didn't want to do it was play with a lot of pace. Like, and you know, he deserves credit, I think for getting LeBron to buy into that on some level. And I think also he deserves credit for, working with LeBron and like not coming in and being like, Oh, I am the coach. So I am your boss and understanding that. No, like when you are an NBA coach, you are a coworker of your stars. You are not, you make some in-game decisions, but you are not their boss. Like at least not in the modern NBA. And I, the way, you know, he was as egoless, I think about that, you know, uh, about that as any coach I've ever seen or heard talk about it. Like he was, you know, open about look like he scheduled, whether or not the Lakers were going to have like practices or shoot arounds, he consulted LeBron and AD on that because they are like, you know, his, like, uh, like, like they are his coworkers essentially. And like guys that he is working with on some level, LeBron is kind of his boss. Uh, and, you know, if you're just looking at stature in the organization and whatever, and I think that Vogel never let like not getting credit or whatever, like, to, you know, on the flip side, like he, kind of diffused credit. He was, you know, he would blame himself after losses and credit the team after wins. He, like credit is not what was important to him. Winning was. And I do think that he deserves, you know, credit for that as well as, you know, for building the defense that this team was able to do. Like Anthony Davis is probably the best defensive player in the league, but the rest of this roster was a huge question mark from a defensive perspective going into mm-hmm. the year and like like a lot of people were wondering whether or not this was going to be able to be like a good defense, not the best defense in the NBA, but a good defense. And like they exceeded all expectations on that front. Like if you go to my Twitter, my pinned tweet is still it's my it's still my favorite story I did this year, but it's from training camp, um, which is somewhat of an indictment of my own writing and coverage of the team, I guess. But either way, um, I uh I went around and I talked during training camp to this team about like, okay, how are they going to try and build an elite defense? And it's kind of, it's aged better than almost any story I've ever done because almost every single thing that they said, what they wanted to do, like Dwight Howard coming in, making an impact with his physicality, not allowing very many shots at the rim and contesting all of them, being able to go big or small, LeBron locking in on defense, really hounding perimeter creators. Like they didn't just talk about that stuff. All of it came to pass. And so I think that Vogel deserves credit for being the architect of that as much as anything that he did this year. I think also to, to further your point, I, I find that humility really impressive given that, you know, you, you had Jason Kidd as an assistant yeah. coach on this team and there was always that rumor. I mean, not, not really in the bubble. And once we got in the playoffs and all that stuff, obviously, but uh, kind of pre bubble, there was always that rumor that, man, if, if anything goes South, you know, Jason Kidd's going to take over this operation was, you know, I I don't know how much true weight there was to that rumor or or how much truth there was to it at all. But that was always kind of one of those narratives that I remember towards the the start of the season. So I'm with you. I, I think it's super impressive. 
look, he he leaned into that. Like, you know, look, there was a reason for that speculation. Jason Kidd tried to overthrow his last two bosses, you know, like, yeah. like he or he committed coups at the last two organizations he was in. Like, this was not a baseless, like, speculation. And then you add in the fact that Jason Kidd is very close to LeBron from their Team USA days, a guy that LeBron really expects, and that the Lakers, like, Vogel didn't pick Jason Kidd. Like, the Lakers foisted Jason Kidd upon Frank Vogel because they really liked him. And they made him the highest-paid assistant coach in the league like a lot of coaches probably would have been coaching over their shoulder a little bit with that and instead Frank leaned into it like rather than seeing Jason Kidd as an enemy he embraced him as an ally and used his strengths like you saw it on the sidelines Jason Kidd going over film in game with the Lakers and stuff like that he was a incredibly huge presence from a vocal perspective in the locker room like he was given a lot of input and a lot of like you know power over you know stuff that the Lakers were going to do and his ideas were taken into account and he was given a large voice and you know really someone that I think that was able to be a voice, you know, to the players because he was an assistant, you know, because it's always different coming from an assistant versus a head coach and be like a vocal leader in the locker room. And Vogel never really saw that as a threat. Like he embraced that, that, that Jason Kidd is a Hall of Famer and a guy that like is probably like as smart of an offensive basketball mind as, you know, we've ever had and who also had some success coaching defenses at times during his coaching career like he was a guy Quinn Cook said part of the reason he wanted to sign was to learn from Jason Kidd like who is uh someone that he grew up uh you know looking for Rondo who does not always have great relationships with coaches you know said that Kidd really taught him and helped mentor him and whatever and Vogel never took that as a threat he took it as an asset and like you know that's another thing I think you're exactly right like all of it he deserves credit for Harrison, um, we'll let you go with this last question, just um, real quick. Where do you see the the season overall for the the, the NBA um, going from, to say, a social justice standpoint? Um, saw just from the, the names on jerseys, the Black Lives Matter on the court. Um, do you see LeBron and others um, taking the initiative and um, will try to push this towards the, the next season? Or do you think this was just kind of a, a one-and-done type of thing and you'll see uh, things look normal from a presentation perspective um, next season? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, like, I think, I mean, number one, LeBron didn't put anything on the back of his jersey because, Correct. you know, I, I, the clear subtext of his message when he was asked why was that I did not get to put what I wanted to on the back. And I don't, who knows what LeBron would have put on the back of his jersey. Maybe he would have put, you know, hashtag strive for greatness or like, you know, like hashtag more than a vote or like some branding thing. Or maybe he would have put a cab, you know, like I, I don't know what he would have put and like none of us do, but he clearly was upset that he did not get the choice and that it had to be a pre-approved slogan. And on some level I get and respect that because look, like, a pre-approved protest is not a protest. And the NBA, I think, deserves credit for allowing players to put this stuff up front. I also think that they deserve a little bit of criticism for forcing, you know, an approval process, you know, beyond like something that was like totally disrespectful or, you know, whatever, like, like, you know, like profanity. I would understand why they couldn't have that on TV or whatever it may be. Um, well, like case in I, point, they didn't even let Jimmy Butler put a blank yeah, like Jersey like something like that. Like that's floor. stupid. Mm-hmm. He should have been able to do that. Like and like that is an actual statement and I respect him for trying to make it. And like even though the league did not let him. Like honestly, like he should have tried to do it in the finals and see if they would have like banned him from a finals game if he really wanted to force the issue. But I also understand why as a competitor he did not want to do that. Um 
you know, like I think I do not anticipate it going into next year because for all that we can say about like, I, I think a lot of the ratings talk and I don't know how you guys feel. I feel like a lot of it's nonsense and it's like, it's interesting that ratings are down almost across the board for all pro sports, but only the NBA is getting criticized for being too woke. The WNBA, which actually went further, actually had ratings go up. So like, I mean, maybe sure. the solution is that every league needs to get more woke. Um, but like, I think that based on what Adam Silver said at his press conference, I think that they are taking a little bit away from these, in my opinion, very dog whistly, very disingenuous criticisms. Um, because like he said, like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know if we're going to do that next year. I feel like this was like a special, like one-off thing. Like, so, you know, maybe the players push for it and maybe they push for no pre-approval beyond like no profanity or stuff like that, like that you can't have on TV. Like maybe they push for no pre-approval process on that, but at the same time, I don't really anticipate it going into next year. It seemed like, I, I think the owner's embrace of it was, you know, half-hearted at best and, I don't really anticipate them doing it again next season. I think that was like a special one-off. And I think There's, there was motivation there to to get the players to come back and finish yes, the season. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I don't mean to sound terribly cynical, but I think no, that was I think you're right. a lot of the incentive. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. They were, I mean, we saw it and the players used that leverage in the bubble when they said they were going to walk away. Like they were able to get the owners to put in more money, establish the social justice coalition. Like everybody asked, like, what are you protesting? What are you trying to get? They answered it. Like it may not have been everything that you wanted, but they got stuff and they deserve credit for that. And they deserve credit for forcing the owners to allow them to have this and like forcing, you know, like courts in Orlando, which has like maybe the most bigoted ownership group left in the NBA, at least most publicly bigoted. And like, uh, like at courts in Orlando reading Black Lives Matter. Like I can't imagine the DeVos family as much as they tried to leak that they were just fine with it was like super thrilled about stuff like that. And so um, like they, uh, like the, the NBA players deserve a lot of credit for what they did manage to do. They do. Um, and I think it's especially in this era of sports, um, it was quite revolutionary because you don't see other athletes um, really using their leverage for um, social justice reform. And as much as uh, Matt and I have gone through this, just I have kind of criticized the players for not having a consistent voice. I mean, I'm not taking the steps that they accomplished this season for granted. I think it's quite revolutionary. And I think we'll look back 50 years from now and really appreciate what they've done. Um, because I yeah, think like are a major process. History books are probably going to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks and what they did and like kicking yeah. off that major stoppage like when they talk about the social unrest of like the uh, and like social justice crusade in 2020 like during the pandemic and they're going to talk about this bubble in, in in like history books and like how it was one of the things that like you know kind of helped like, like you know if these tests that they were able to pioneer in the bubble are able to make a difference and like you know fighting back against this pandemic like they're going to talk about the nba in history books and they're definitely going to talk about in some history books what the bucks did and what they kicked off around uh you know after the jacob blake shooting so like I think like players were able to make a mark. It may, you know, obviously they cannot fix every single thing that is wrong in our country and our society, and they should not be expected to. But they did like they did more than most of the people, you know, like on Twitter that were criticizing them for not doing enough. For sure. Uh, thanks, Harrison, for joining the show. Um, go ahead and plug um, any um, articles or projects or in all your social media handles um, and just uh, tell us what you're up to next. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, all of my writing and podcasting can be found on Silver Screen and Roll, which is, uh, like, you know, our SB Nation's Lakers coverage site. It's like a, you know, play on words because movies in L.A. and Screen and Roll, the basketball play. Uh, I wish I had come up with it because it's very clever, but I'd not. I just took over. Um, <laughs> and, like, uh, we have our, you know, like, season review series coming up. We have some stuff coming up on, like, how the Lakers can approach free agency and things like that that will be on the site, like, that I'm really proud of, even if I didn't necessarily write all of it. Um, you know, like you could search silver screen and roll and find our podcast. I'm on Twitter at HMFAIGEN, and that's where I like plug most of my individual work. But, you know, just silverscreenandroll.com is where you can find anything that I'm a part of. Awesome, Harrison. Well, we, we thank you for your insight and I appreciate you joining the show, man. Thank you. Yeah, happy to do it anytime, guys. Yeah, thanks, Harrison. It was a pleasure. Hope to talk to you again soon.